Welcome to the American Reformer Podcast, promoting a vigorous Christian approach to the cultural challenges of our day and rooted in the rich tradition of Protestant social and political thought. Hosted by Josh Abitoy and Ben Dunson. Hello and welcome to the American Reformer Podcast. Today you've got me, Josh Abitoy, as uh, as usual, uh, Executive Director of American Reformer, and I am joined by Timon Klein. Uh, Timon, actually, I do get one free pass to call you uh, Timon, uh, I think, once. That's uh, right. <laughs> for uh, retribution for a crime that we won't go into. But uh, uh, Timon, welcome. Timon's the Associate Editor of American Reformer, and... Uh, uh, we are today going to talk about uh, a pretty important article that, that Timon wrote uh, on Friday that we published in our pages. Um, the, this article is, is it's entitled A Polity Undone, and it's a lengthy read, sort of an a, a American Affairs style long form piece on the battles over parental rights and, uh, and various related issues. Um, Timon, why don't you why don't you unpack the the thesis of your article a little bit, and let's let's get that on the table. Yeah, uh, thanks, Josh Abatoy with two O's um, is how it's spelled for anyone wondering. Um, the The thesis of the article is is somewhat twofold. So on the one hand, um, I'm I'm criticizing, and and so this this helps indicate what the thesis is. The thing that was the initial impetus for writing this piece, which I've been working on for a few weeks, was actually an article from David French back in I think March at, at New York Times um, that was looking at sort of this divide uh, between states um, that's emerging uh, pretty rapidly, actually, from from what I can tell. Um, in the way that parental rights um, and the welfare of children is being both thought about and handled um, legally. And this comes down to custody battles and all sorts of things. And of course, all of it centers on the transgender treatment question. So he he set up the dichotomy between Texas and California, both handling it very differently. And that same dichotomy is emerging between other neighboring states and what struck me about David French's approach to this is he never considered the moral question um, in play. So his critique was both states are violating, you know, the rights of parents to do what they want, and never thought about well, what is the what is the good and what is the bad in the situation. Um, so it's a very proceduralist, kind of liberal, tired, you know, from our perspective, approach to these things, and it kind of just set me off because on the one hand. Um, I, I do think that that teleological, even ontological question is always in the background of law. And two, you see a lot of conservatives, I and mean, David French still says he's a conservative, thinking that this parental rights um, idea in, in his sort of in his way of conceiving of it will protect us from any kind of um, incursions into uh, family life. And both of those things are, are wrong. Um, so I, I kind of kind of went through and tried to demonstrate, one, this is not the right way to think about the question. And then two, even if you do cling to this sort of rights talk, this rights discourse and think that the parchment guarantee will save your family, um, it's it's obviously the case that in the majority of blue states at this point, uh, your family is not going to be safe from the sexual revolution and all of its progeny um, when you're just hiding behind this bare rights 
uh, of, of the parents. Yeah. And, and, um, to get French's exact thesis on the table, he critiqued the Texas law because he, he wasn't even saying in principle, a state cannot ban like minor gender transitions, but, but his, his objection to the Texas Mm -hmm. law was the Texas law said, um, parents could be prosecuted, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, mm-hmm. or investigated for child abuse if they encouraged their tra- child to transition or pressured them to transition. So, so mm-hmm. that for and, and Texas has since closed this loophole. It's no longer legal for a minor to have a gender transition in Texas. But mm-hmm. for a period of time, we had this odd odd setup where it was legal to go seek a gender transition from a medical provider, but the parent could be investigated and prosecuted for pushing that decision. Mm-hmm. Which you know, I didn't even even conservatives would say, okay, that's suboptimal. We should just take the option off the table from the medical provider side. But his, his specific objection, Mm -hmm. at least, you know, on its face was he didn't like, he didn't like the state having the ability to go after parents, Um, which, you know, I think, I think this just really highlights the contestability of the physical harm principle as a limiting principle Mm -hmm. on, um, you know, what, what limits the, what limits the rights of parents or, you know, for that matter, what limits the rights of like a religion that claims religious liberty in the late um, 20th century version of liberalism that we're all kind of living in the uh, line in the sand that folks have drawn is that, you know, um, parents have parental rights or religions have freedom of religion until they cross the line into physically harming people. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's, I mean, it sounds, sounds like a straightforward standard in theory, but then when you actually get into it, I mean, this is a, this is a sort of a binary take. I mean, on, you know, those of us who are social conservatives would say that um, castrating minors is harming them physically. And Mm -hmm. on the flip side, Mm -hmm. uh, the, Sexual revolutionaries would say that withholding, you know, allowing somebody to follow the natural progression of their development uh, would actually irreparably harm them. Um, And and so these are sort of, you know, mutually opposed binaries. And and the way that you have to mediate through them is with a like a comprehensive viewpoint. Right. I mean, we're going to lose the battle of the experts. I mean, you know, that's not it's not a neutral battle of the experts. It it. uh, you know, the, the thing that really mediates between them is, is metaphysical views on the human person. Yeah, that, no, that's exactly right. Um, and that's that's part of what I wanted to highlight of, of one. We, the, the law already, um, you know, is, is cognizant of, of this, even as even as certain legal theorists deny it, because as I talked about in the article a little bit, you know, there's there's certain forms of abuse and neglect that we already um, you know, punish that extend beyond just a bare harm principle. Um, there, there's educational neglect is a, is a thing that the parental rights can be terminated for. Um, that's, that's not evidently a, a physical harm that's being enacted there. There's also the, there's even federal statutes against, um, you know, this is through, of, of course, at the federal level, it's all about distribution, but even through the internet, it's considered distribution of exposing minors to sexually obscene or explicit content can be, can constitute a form of abuse. Um, so the point is, you know, we already, the, the law already knows this, even as 
certain legal theorists or commentators try to pretend it's all just based on a physical harm principle. And of course, it's no less than that. But then what you're pointing out is, is that even if we were to see, yes, let's, let's just run with the physical harm principle, you, the metaphysics behind what constitute the physical harm itself is still unavoidable. Um, because in this case, you have two diametrically opposed views. One is uh, going to under the term, you know, medical neglect or medical abuse of denying, you know, life-saving treatment. And then they're, they're going to cite the, the suicide rates, self-harm rates of, of people with minors with gender dysphoria and all this sorts of stuff. So you're, you're not only denying essential medical care for them to have some kind of psychological and emotional well-being, um, but you're, you're going to, uh, you know, compound some of the physical effects that, that, that can happen from this illness, right, that's supposed to be plaguing them. And then on the flip side, the, the sane side, uh, the, the Texas side, you're going to say, um, well, this is it's some kind of either either frustrating natural adolescent development <clears throat> or or straight up, you know, castrating um, or mutilate otherwise mutilating uh, minor bodies is is obviously violence and and physical harm. Um, so, what does someone like David French do to be able to wade through um, that that sort of conundrum? And he still thinks that just appealing to the, the private parental rights of you know, medical decision makers and all these things is sufficient. Um, but what the real debate that's actually being had is showing is, um, yet again, there's li limits to all rights um, and discretion. Um, and the, uh, you know, in, in the law already, there's obviously a state interest in the well-being of children. That's why this situation is even presented. So where do we go from here? Um, and as you said, if you don't have a background metaphysic that knows how to handle um, these things, you're going to be at, you're going to be at sea, and it's you're you're not going to know how quite to mediate between the two sides. Yeah, and, and I, I mean, I guess we should we we've talked about this a bit before, but you know, I think that there's uh, conservative lawyers, the conservative legal movement has embraced a sort of a rights expansionist reading of the Bill of Rights, I think partly out of sound tactical judgment, right? Like we, if we no longer have a majority in all the states or, or whatever else, you know, we, we at least carve out a space for uh, protection of, of Christians and those with traditional morality so that we're not, you know, persecuted in the public square. Um, like following, following the Obergefell decision, right? Our, our legal strategy very much mm -hmm. shifted towards protect minority religious viewpoints um, for those who still hold to traditional belief on marriage, make sure they don't have to bake the cake, um, you know, make sure they don't have to go to the wedding, uh, you know, the, and, and, you know, get, get those protections in place. And I think, you know, it's, it might be popular among some on the new right to bash that legal strategy, but, you know what, that probably is the right legal strategy. But I think we're, you know, it's the it's probably the winning legal strategy uh, because that's a game that's, you know, it's the rules are already set and, you know, you've got to play within the parameters of what exists in that world. And so that, you know, winning for social conservatives in litigation probably does look like leaning into uh, rights expansionist views at, at the present but that's sort of a distinct question from, you know, the overall uh, culture war and what winning looks like politically, right? And and this is where, you know, yeah. I think we would 
I would say that someone like David French is a guy who's he's allowed like sort of what I would say are sound litigation tactics to subsume the entirety of his political philosophy. Um, you know, he's subordinated mm-hmm. all of that to, uh, you know, John Mills brain. Uh, wh- whereas, mm-hmm. you know, we've got, um, we've got red States where we can en- enact just laws that are an exemplar to the country and actually, you know, inspire people and, and show a, show a contrast, you know? Um, and I think, yeah, well, and to, just, just to, uh, emphasize what you're saying here before we move on from it, um, this harkens back to when, when you and I were talking to Hunter Baker, I think you, you mentioned this before, um, something Dobbs has kind of, of awakened for the conservative legal movement, or, or at least hopefully, um, and conservatives generally is, um, a recognition that we we happen to live in a federalist polity and that there can be different types of strategies that are available at the state level that tactically, like you were saying, uh, may not be successful at the federal level, right? So like when you when you go into the Supreme Court, your goal is to get Jack Phillips off the hook for, you know, like the 10th time, however, however many times they're going to bring this, haul this guy before the tribunal. Um, but at the state level, there's, there's sort of an much more open playing field, both for historical constitutional reasons and because of some um, neglect, even by the left, of um, state power at that level. I mean, there, there's much more uh, opportunity for, for red states, um, and there are more red states um, than is usually acknowledged to, to do exciting things. That it's kind of it's kind of open season, and so that goes back to your point. I think you made with Hunter of you know being Machiavellian at the federal level. Um, but then at the state level, there's this uh, this opportunity to be even more forthrightly and explicitly moral in our in our legislation, and again in our constitutional order, it's the proper place for it. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And and I think and you you kind of uh, tip your hand a little bit to this possibility, but I I think we have to say like we don't know exactly how all of this plays out. There's there's significant complexity. Uh, in a federal system like ours, when you start to get states that have very like sort of diametrically opposed mm-hmm. regimes on these questions, so you know we we've discussed mm-hmm. this a bit in the past, but um, extradition is a, is a huge issue that's likely to become live mm-hmm. again. Um, you know, and and you know this is likely to go up to the Supreme Court. Um, I think it's fascinating to speculate on what what's the Supreme Court going to do. It's going to be faced with states that have you know exactly opposite stances on these issues. What are how are they going to resolve this? Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which will which you know that'll be really interesting to see the map in terms of circuit splits um, because it doesn't uh, of course the circuit map doesn't exactly coordinate with with where the red states are located. Um, so the Fifth Circuit but will come will down be, on the yeah, right side, just, and I think all of the states in the Fifth yeah. Circuit will also be on the right side. Um, I think that I think that, and then you have there might be circuit. a split coming out of the Ninth Circuit because Idaho is in the Ninth Circuit, right? Mm-hmm. Or is, is Idaho right? Is Idaho Ninth Circuit? They might be. Oh, I forget. They They're might be seventh, tenth. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's really interesting. Yeah, I, mean, I guess I, the Mountain I, Mountain West. Yeah, yeah, there may not. I mean, there. there 
the Sixth Circuit might give us a split because Tennessee's Tennessee's passed laws now, and uh, the the Sixth Circuit remanded. Mm-hmm. A district court struck down the Tennessee law, but then the Sixth Circuit remanded to the district court. Um, but you might mm-hmm. you might see. I, mm-hmm. I think the Sixth Circuit is kind of moderate, middle of the road. So you might see a you might see them you know come down on the wrong side of this issue, which would create the split. Um, but I think we yeah. the Fifth Circuit's definitely going to come down on the right side, um, and then. And Idaho is ninth. Idaho's ninth. Yeah, Idaho's ninth. Okay. It goes over. So, yeah. so Idaho probably tenth circuit stops at Utah. Idaho probably own. creates the split. Then, I bet you mm-hmm. the ninth circuit strikes down when Idaho passes a law if they haven't already. Do you know offhand? Mm-hmm. I don't. I don't think that they're on my. Well, I can check my list, but uh, there's not. I think there's around nineteen or twenty states at this point. So. Yeah. Um, uh, oh no! I believe Idaho. Idaho has actually. Yeah. Okay. If I'm a betting man, I think that's your circuit split. I think Idaho's law yeah. gets struck down by the Ninth Circuit, uh, and then the Fifth and probably the Eleventh uphold these laws. Yeah, I actually should have thought about that and provided some commentary in the article because Kentucky also is on the list of of stricter bans. Um, so you have Idaho, Idaho, Iowa, Kentucky, Mississippi, Oklahoma, Tennessee, and Texas have all passed pretty strict bans. Okay. Um, there's some kind of restriction in, in 19 states last I checked. Um, so even in the Sixth Circuit, you have Kentucky doing it. Um, and then, yeah, in the Ninth Circuit, you have, you have Idaho causing the problem. Um, Oklahoma causing it in the Tenth Circuit. Got it. And I, I don't know where the Tenth Circuit is these days. Um, and you said Iowa. That's Eighth Circuit, I believe. So, so I mean, there's there's ample opportunity yeah. for a split to develop. I mean, this may be a maybe a couple years out uh, before it's really right gets to that stage where it would be ready for a Supreme Court uh, battle. Mm-hmm. But it's just it's fascinating. It really sets up. It's just quite different than um, than some of the battles we've fought in the past. I mean, it's a very straightforward clash of uh, di- I mean, opposing metaphysical views. And, mm-hmm. uh, it, it gets, it just touches really close to, uh, to home. Uh, it's going to be one that has significant investment, I think from parrots on both sides of the issue. So. Yeah. Yeah. And you're, I mean, it's causing part of the urgency behind it may be, you know, it's causing all kinds of, of problems, um, in, in the law, even in family law. I mean, we we actually talked, I think you mm-hmm. and I, on another podcast episode about the, when some of this was emerging with, you know, California's approach and they've just continued to double down on and, and further develop their, their sort of apparatus at this point. Uh, the thing we were talking about um, a while back was when, you know, you're creating this issue ca- with California, where if you came into um, the state fleeing another state where a custody arrangement existed, um, you know, previously the only reason you could do that and violate the custody agreement um, is if you're fleeing abuse for the safety and health and welfare of the child, right? And then you would go before a judge and that'd be justified. So what they did is extend the definition functionally of abuse to, um, you know, this the pursuit of gender affirming care, right? So you're, you have one parent in one state um, not wanting to, to affirm and not interested in, in you know, transing their kid you leave with the kid and get into California and they're going to protect you. And it's going to be 
um, it's not going to cut against you in the new custody battle that will emerge in that state. So that, that's where it started. And they've only gone further to, uh, you know, alter the family code to include disapproval of transgenderism as, you know, a form of abuse. Um, a new bill that's on the table would require any foster parents to commit to the affirmation of a child's gender beforehand. And this is in, in accordance really with, with federal guidance. Um, so there, it's, it's continuing apace and um, that, that's gonna, that creates real problems, um, even in just the discrete field of family law, before you even get to these big circuit splits that, that make it uh, you know, unworkable in many ways. Because of course, uh, today there's lots of custody arrangements that end up crossing state lines and it becomes complicated and a bit of a pain, um, but it's usually just on um, sort of technicalities, you know, funding, all these sorts of things, alimony. Um, now you're coming to where you know, you're gonna have this really um, explosive situation that we've already seen uh, sort of warnings of from Canada and things like that, right? Um, where it, it, they take it all the way to the hilt. Um, so it's going to be it is, it's going to be potentially scary in that way, and it will it will cause a lot of problems long before uh, the Supreme Court can even weigh in on it. Yeah, and I'm sure, um, like in California, California is probably already favoring uh, affirming parents in custody battles, right? Um, and it's probably. Yeah, I think that's been going and on. The, for a and the while. dynamic is like it's not even you know they don't have to pass legislation and you know and and frankly it couldn't even mm -hmm. be like it might even not be in it all that important of an issue in the dispute, other than you know the one that's fighting for custody decides to become affirming and use that as like a wedge issue to you know just advocate mm -hmm. for more custody for themselves. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I wonder. Uh, Actually, just as we tease this out, uh, business idea for any enterprising legislators out there in red states. But, um, you know, you could theoretically, like, by statute, add uh, likelihood of, of uh, causing or assisting in a transition as like a, a custody factor. Right. I mean, you could you could directly I mean, you could by statute sort of direct family courts uh, to disfavor. Uh, custody arrangements that might put kids in harm's way by, you know, putting them in California. Um, I mean, that would be mm -hmm. that would be truly kind of playing offense in this regard. Yeah. Yeah. And basically do. I mean, this is what, you know, liberal judges in places like California have already been doing, which would be the flip side or exact opposite of what you just said. So it's kind of fighting fire with fire mm -hmm. is what you're going to have to do in, in many ways to compound the issue. So you could potentially get. Um, you know, more definitive rulings from higher courts, but also just to, um, in the meantime, I mean, again, analogizing to to the abortion situation, whatever you can do to prevent um, some of these catastrophic arrangements from being, uh, you know, upheld at, the, at state levels, you should. I mean, every kind of family that's saved from this, obviously, if they're in custody battles, they're often already broken broken families, but you're really um, and typically it's the, it's, it's the mother, it's the woman who is going to be aff most affirming, right? That's just how it goes typically. Mm -hmm. Um, and so it's, it's men are already strongly disfavored in family courts, very typically. Um, you, you could say that's uh, in, in these sort of custody arrangements, maybe that's legitimate, maybe it's not, but it's just the, the fact. Um, and so this is only in states like California, it only goes one way. And, uh, you know, you have the case I highlight in the in the article that uh, Abigail Schreier had already talked about um, a couple of weeks ago or maybe a month ago, 
um, the, the T Ted Hudako case, uh, which got some national attention. And if you read, you can go look up and read the um, uh, the transcript from from the case where the this judge, Superior Court judge in California, is you know goes through this wild kind of fact pattern, um, really de demoralizing in a certain way to the to the dad, um, questioning you know whether he loves his kid. And, you know, wouldn't you still love your kid if, if she claimed she was the Queen of England? And he's like, yes, but I wouldn't affirm the delusion. And they're like, well, what if it's bad? You know, it just it was completely ridiculous. And it all turns out that that particular judge never disclosed to any of the parties that she herself has a transgender kid, uh, which seems somewhat uh, relevant. So the my point there is you're in these states, not only do you have the uh, in a sort of principled and strictly legal way the deck stacked against you. You also just think of the personnel that have discretion in these scenarios and will be judging the case. Mm -hmm. And that includes both the judges and the experts, right? And much of, as I talk about, family law is farmed out to experts, expert opinion about the well-being um, of the children. And as you already said, we'll never win that expert battle. Um, and that, that field is generally uh, saturated with the latest gender ideology. And they, in turn, usually educate the judiciary. Um, and then you have, it, even if that wasn't bad enough, you're going to have in metropolitan blue states like California, much of California is actually red, but in certain areas, you're going to have people that they themselves at a very personal level already have, uh, affirm and, and have bought into this delusion. Um, so it's, it's really not a good scenario for uh, sane, reality-based uh, conservative families to be in. Yeah. Yeah, and this, I mean, there's so much this this debate touches on, right? Because, I mean, we immediately, um, th th there's a lot of directions we could take this, but, I mean, this is one of the major instigators behind the the great sort and, you know, this mm -hmm. call that a lot of Christians have been sounding, which is, like, you know, if you have kids, basically, like, you probably should get out of California. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, yeah, maybe it's a low likelihood risk, but it's one of those risks where um, if it does, you know, it's catastrophic if it happens. Maybe it's a low probability that it does. Mm -hmm. But, you know, if you're uh, if, if you're especially if your kid has to interface with like the state in any way. Right. If. if, if uh, yeah. Uh, any kind of mandatory reporter scenario that you have to interface with um which are really concentrated in in public schooling and in the medical field right and, yeah. and med again medical abuse is what this is riding under so there's a lot of uh connections there you know anywhere where there are social workers generally which are going to be schools and and hospitals um that's where you would you could potentially have have issues and it'd be one thing if the only thing you had to worry about was um you know the whether you have a kid who wants to be trans and you could say, well, we're a good Christian family. I don't let my kids get into the contagion of TikTok. Mm -hmm. And so they're not, uh, you know, they're not as affected by this. They don't think they have gender dysphoria, but some other trends I point out that, you know, if, if these inputs are plugged into the preexisting structure um, of, of family law and the way these things are being adjudicated, you know, I talk about certain, um, prejudices, I guess we could say, of, you know, legal academia and practitioners generally about uh, Christian homeschooling um, and, and a generally Christian way of life, we'd say, and, and 
even even making or equivocating between actual physical abuse, of course, and then, you know, a home maybe where you force your kids to read the Bible. Mm-hmm. Um, and these could be hotbeds of extremism and Nazism and everything terrible. And so we, you know, there is a trickle down effect, as you know, with the highest, uh, the upper echelons of legal academia down into, uh, you know, the judiciary and into practitioners, especially the activist uh, sort of litigators. And so once you see these ideas starting to swirl around, you should just expect them to eventually materialize. Um, and I, I talk about some ways that they already do, at least in arguments that are being made. Um, and in general, if the argument is being openly made, it's probably in many ways too late to, to stop it at full, at full scale. It is going to crop up. So when you have, you know, uh, gay rights activist groups arguing that pre-existing statutes, um, you know, already justify uh, keeping keeping secrets essentially about these gender issues between uh, teachers and students from their parents, you know, this is this is a real problem. They're already sort of inserting the wedge into the family, um, and and this is just happening um, on on multiple fronts. And so that's, there's reasons to be be concerned, even if your your kids aren't flirting with trans transgenderism yeah. um, in the way these things are going. Yeah. Um, you, you had a turn of phrase that I think I want to park on. You said, you know, the, the, and I I think you're spot on, like the legal profession as a whole, uh, there are exceptions and, you know, pockets of variety, but as a whole, um, the thought leaders are sort of opposed to the Christian way of life and, Mm -hmm. um, time in pop quiz time, but, uh, who is your, who is your political enemy? My political enemy is the left. It's is it? It's the one who opposes, who wants to end your way of life. That's right. So, yeah. yeah. So yeah, it is the left in this case. But it's um, the the. I mean, that's that's Carl Schmidt, right? And like, I don't right. don't use him as some sort of just flee to authority appeal here, but he's got a good insight, which is that um, the we really see the, the, the reemergence of what he calls the political, the, the competing visions of, of mm-hmm. the good. Um, we, we see that when, when, you know, we're contesting ways of life. And I, I think like a debate around one's children and how to order like the family is it, it, it strikes at sort of like the core of a person's way of life in, in just a mm-hmm. way that, that doesn't, I mean, there's a lot of other, you know, marginal tax rates and even even what consenting adults do on the other side of town. Like that's all that's all kind of, um, I guess, could be born, could be shrugged off. Um, You feel like the effects Mm -hmm. of decisions you disagree with could be mitigated. Um, But when you're talking about the intrusion of a regime into your home and into the relationship between the parent and a child, this I mean, this brings the battle to everybody in a way that um, I think will just engage and engender far more resistance than a lot of uh, prior movements have, which were um, more plausibly couched in sort of libertarian language. You know, what consenting adults do on their own is none of your business. Okay, but now you're now you're intruding into my living room and telling you know, t- like basically telling me I don't get a say over like transformative and, you know, I'd say irreparably harmful mm-hmm. actions that could be taken with respect to my own kids. 
and and I guess yeah. what I'm what I'm driving at is I want to game out what happens in this case relative to something like Obergefell. Um, I was in law school when Obergefell happened, and I just remember the 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 constant refrain was, you know, it's impossible to have conflicting legal regimes on marriage in this country. Like it's the conflicts are just. Mm-hmm hopelessly messy. There's no way to solve it. It's too complicated. It's unworkable. We need a national policy. Either gay marriage is allowed or it isn't. Um, otherwise, the conflict of law just get too too crazy. I, that argument is probably even more applicable to the case of yeah. per, the, the sorts of parental rights that we're talking about here. But yet, yeah. I don't think I, – well, I, I don't know. Um, will the left push for a national solution? Because I'm not sure they'll like the national solution they get. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so. A, a couple things going back to what you were you were saying. Um, you know, lest we be accused of never criticizing people on our right, I do think you know there is this tendency on the new right um, to talk about which this is in, you know theoretically and, and correct is you know the LGB can't be separated from the T, right? This, this is all part of a, a, um, a logic and it's, it's, it's going to go to its logical conclusion. Um, that's correct, but it also sort of downplays what you were talking about, which I think is very sensible and natural, which is when this thing um, overextended, I guess you could even say tactically into, into the, the kids, right? This is drag queen story hour. This is all this stuff. Once it, once it touched the, the kids, I think there was something instinctual um, on people that that we would say are insufficiently on the right or have an under, under, underdeveloped theory about society and where it should go, its ends. But they they do kind of instinctually get this, that this is something different. It's a it's another step. And part of what I, I say in the piece is that's in part because the family is foundational to society and whatever goes on there is, is reflective of what's going to go on at scale. Um, or writ large. So I, I do think that that is actually, I actually don't want to castigate people for, for maybe being somewhat inconsistent, but on this issue, uh, sort of standing up straight, I think it's, it actually makes sense. Um, but to your point, I mean, I, I remember Obergefell as, as well, and at the time thinking the same thing, and actually thinking that argument about the need for the urgency of a national settlement was kind of overblown. Yeah. I, I didn't really under, I, no one could ever make the case clearly to me of why that was, why conflicting marriage regimes would actually cause that much of a problem. I mean, you got these like few sob stories. I remember in the press, of, you know, that had something to do with burials and like inheritance and things, but they seem pretty marginal in certain ways. So that one, I didn't really, really get, but it was very effective at driving, um, you know, to, to, to the, to the case and the national settlement. But in this case, I would hundred percent agree with you that it would be even more urgent, um, because of the, um, the externalities and the repercussions of having conflicting regimes, it could get, it could get very aggressive and, and nasty. Um, but like you said, the, maybe the difference here, whereas in 20, uh, 2015, as, as many people, I think Adrian Vermeule's pointed this out multiple times, everyone at the time knew gay marriage across the country was probably inevitable, inevitable if you just let the states do their thing. It probably was going to happen. And it was just a matter of time. But they still you know, demanded this, this national declaration. In this case, um, victory is not so inevitable um, or certain for the left, for the blue states. In fact, you're already seeing a, a sort of um, you know, splits as we were already talking about it, even a, a sectional kind of 
cordoning off of, of what's going on. So it would be, uh, they might be less enthusiastic about it because it's easy to be enthusiastic about a premature national settlement if you know victory is already secured anyway. Um, but in this case, they may not want to force the issue um, before they, they really know that they could, they could win on either front um, regardless. Yeah. Well, and I, red states and red states are already demonstrating they're willing to uh, to to be very aggressive in in return in this way. It puts it for the Supreme Court under the direction of Chief Justice Roberts, who you know bend over bends over backwards to avoid any kind of clear ruling. Um, mm-hmm. It puts them in a pretty tricky position. Like you know, I mean, even if he just, I mean, it it it's likely to be a very meaningful circuit split. Mm-hmm. And like even meaningful in the sense of like what does what does Idaho do if the Ninth Circuit strikes down Idaho's law and the Supreme Court refuses to hear the case? I yeah. you know, I think there's a very good chance like if they if they try to avoid this on the basis of political question doctrine or something, the Supreme Court does. Mm-hmm. And so they're letting the circuit split stand. I think it's a totally open question as to whether Idaho um, complies with like a Ninth Circuit ruling that's allowed to stay out hanging mm-hmm. out there. Um, mm-hmm. I think just in gaming this out, I think SCOTUS will be forced to take it. Yeah. And yeah, I, I think within the, if if the splits go the way we were discussing or some kind of combination, uh, which it seems like they will. Um, then in the, if you could expect uh, that that case in a few years. And they'll be forced to take it. And if they have to take it, they're probably going to allow these red state laws to stand as the, as exactly. the court is currently comprised. Yeah. It, yeah. And the, and this would be, that, that would be, you know, that would be the correct uh, ruling in that regard. Um, this, this is generally a, I mean, as I said before, family law as a as a doctrinal area is all is state centric, concentrated. You do you have federal standards that states basically agree to to adopt for the for the sake of some continuity, but they they don't have to. Um, and and then there's there's a lot of funding attached to that as well, so that's that's where it can get tricky. But in general, you can you can do what you want, and we would say you know that under the the state police powers, that's actually appropriate. Um, but what will what will be tricky is then if you have such stark contrast between states or even regions. Mm-hmm. Um, so even if SCOTUS says, yes, it's fine what Idaho has done, we have to let that stand. Um, that's one thing because Idaho would be an outlier in their circuit potentially. Um, but what do you do when you have a huge, you know, an entire circuit um, that is so different from an, uh, another one? Um, and you have these huge, you know, kind of regional or sectional splits um, is a very, I don't think, I don't think gay marriage presented the same prospect at the time as being a problem in that way. No, it didn't. And, you know, again, I, I think that the, um, there was nowhere near the credible threat of sort of non-compliance or civil disobedience in the case right. of gay marriage. I mean, like one person right. around the country, that clerk from a small town in Kentucky, like decided not to issue a license. Right. And that was a national news story for weeks about this terrible right. clerk in Kentucky, uh, who I think was a hero, yeah. by the way. Um, Absolutely. and, but, but the situation is so different now. I don't, I don't think there's any doubt. Mm-hmm. Um, I like, and this gets to the, 
you touch on this in your article, of course, like family is family is the fundamental building block of society. Um, I was just spending some time in Althusius's Politica uh, last mm-hmm. week, and he's he's very good on this, right? He he sees society yeah. as like a um, society as a complex organism that has sort of small organisms within it, right? And so, you know, mm-hmm. at the at the highest level, you've got the the nation. Um, but then within that, you've got the family and you've got other subsidiary institutions that have their own uh, symbiosis. And right. one of the ways he defines tyranny is, you know, when you've got a, a ruler at the top who is um, sort of causing malfunction for the uh, complex organi- organisms underneath the nation, right, that, that mm-hmm. comprise the nation. And and so, you know, this this setup where you've got a national regime or, you know, even a state regime that's that's tinkering with and disordering the family is, it, at least in Althusius, it's sort of a paradigmatic example of tyranny. Yeah. And we don't we don't throw tyranny around like, you know, uh, loosely. I mean, this is tyranny is. Tyranny is the trigger that um, allows a right to revolution uh, mm-hmm. when it when it occurs. Of course, you know properly mediated through lesser magistrates and other appropriate authorities. But but tyranny is the trigger that that I mean really justifies, maybe even obligates uh, resistance. And 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 that's all that's all at the theoretical level. But I think even at the practical level and we can all recognize this um when there's just more appetite for for resistance in this case i mean if the parents are going to be ready to shred the social contract i mean if if the state is reaching into their home and affecting their children they are ready to throw out the social Mm -hmm. contract they're ready to you know basically do anything sacrifice almost anything to protect their children yeah and yeah because of that credible threat of resistance, it puts this whole legal issue in a very different position than I think Obergefell was. Um, yeah, yeah, and it's just it's going to be it's going to be a fascinating one to watch. Um, and I just don't know, you know, I don't know how it. I still don't know how it games out. Uh, but it seems most likely that the, that if it goes up to the Supreme Court, they allow the red state laws to stand. So red states have mm-hmm. the restrictions, and then you know. And then there's going to be what that means is we're now in a world where there's incredibly complex disputes around uh, extradition, around custody fights Mm -hmm. like that. That messiness almost seems inevitable. Yeah, which is a messiness that we haven't um, experienced in a while. Right. Um, The the last time you you, right. Last time you did, which you you could I mean, the analogies uh, could be you know infinite in this in this regard like you know fugitive slave act type stuff what Mm -hmm. do you do when one flees you know these these issues that that precipitated um the need for you know stronger action and and but this time the the moral question would be very different um and everything you were drawing from Althusius, i mean is exactly right and i think you know proves that the protestant tradition did not jettison the classical uh tradition and its insights into the the political and if you do anything i mean this is in, in every case where you have uh, resistance, rebellion, or even regicide, whether they're right or wrong in their applications, these will be the arguments that are made. You know, it's Charles I is directly making war 
on the the Commonwealth, which pre-exists him and is immortal, and it's it's the people, um, you know. So you have these kinds of arguments, and it, it, this in this case, it's very granular. If you're making war on the family, which undergirds the Commonwealth and the polity itself, I mean, it's it, it's totally illegitimate mm-hmm. uh, in that in that case. Mm-hmm. Um, and if it's illegitimate, you know, it doesn't even exist. Uh, so I mean, you could the <laughs> I'm a big defender uh, most often of. In the end, the arguments made by the founders for um, resistance and secession, but they were they were much less morally offensive than what we're dealing with here, and they would agree with that. Um, so I do think that 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 credible threat of of resistance and frustration, which again was not not in play with gay marriage, and was not in play even with abortion at any point in our lives. Um, you know, even prior to Dobbs, I think everyone was was pointing out some very red states would never have, have just, you know, probably will never just ban abortion outright, even though that they're allowed to now. Um, the the enthusiasm is just not there. This is, is something different. And it's um, part of this probably has to do with the fact that you can see certain images in your face all the time mm-hmm. um, that are meant to demoralize and, um, you know, strike against, again, our, our way of life. And um, they're in your face constantly, and so it keeps people aware and and exercised, rightly exercised about it. Um, and I do I do think that there's there's growing um, willingness to be to be muscular on this issue because uh, people instinctively, even if they haven't read Althusius, know basically what Althusius is talking about, right at this level. Yeah, yeah. Even the abortion. I mean, abortion could, in some senses, you could say it it. Certainly, like the moral scale of the issue and, and all of that is comparably grave to this. I mean, maybe, you know, graver than this issue. But the in abortion as well, it's somewhat disanalogous from the issues we're talking about now, merely because, you know, you could still say in the case of abortion, don't like an abortion, don't get one, you know. Um, right. And, uh, y- you know, there was no, you know, like – the, the Christian way of life could persist in a regime that allowed abortion because nobody was going to force you to abort your children. Right. Um, mm-hmm. This one's different because, you know, there's no, there's no if you're in California, there's no opt out. Right. I mean, it's, it, mm-hmm. it, it, you know, there's no libertarian default or something like that. It, it will affect mm-hmm. you and your family if you, uh, if you rub up against it. And so, mm-hmm. You know, that that's just again, that doesn't say that's not to say that that the minor transition issue is more grave than abortion, but it certainly is. It's more directly felt as tyranny. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think, you know, in many ways, it's it's a it's a very high stakes. Uh, It'd be better if we had done this earlier um, down the line. But the. It's a very high stakes occasion to reconsider some of our priors um, in the way that we we approach all of these moral issues and even think about um, the the proper operation of law um, and, and you know the reconsidering arguments David French is making would have made sense to me um, like when I was in college like in your libertarian phase mm-hmm. and still makes sense to a lot of people. Um, and I think this issue, though, in particular, has driven the new right conversation from the beginning and um, or, you know, we, we have to have a mythology. So it's it's beginning publicly and um, and is even for for what we would call normies, 
is making them reconsider certain things, at least on a case-by-case basis of they may still maintain their civil libertarianism when it comes to marriage and sexuality with adults, but this is a bridge too far. Um, and it, it's just the way it's, it's kind of played out. Um, same thing with schooling. You know, a lot of the CRT stuff really didn't gain momentum until the school boards started being the, the battlefield, right? And Chris Rufo started highlighting and Matt Walsh, those, those sorts of situations. Mm-hmm. Um, so people instinctively know, you know, the children, the rearing of children, the, the, uh, the, the conditioning of them, both morally and intellectually, um, and, and the way you kind of govern your own household um, as a microcosm of the, of the greater polity matters. And when you see it being attacked, you start wondering how unstable the, the stuff it's supposed to be reflecting actually is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so all that to say, it's on a, on a, a positive note. It, there's good that can come of this, um, but it's also, it also is very high stakes and it, it could lead to real constitutional problems um, and, and, and you know, further disruption. Um, but I think it is allowing us to flex some muscles that had otherwise atrophied, um, both intellectually and legislatively. Yep. Yeah, th- this question, I mean, really – more fundamentally, this question of the formation of the youth is is a is a really good one to consider the limitations of libertarianism. I think you're to be congratulated. I think you had grown out of libertarianism well before you had your kids. Um, but yeah. I uh, I still had some vestigial libertarian instincts when I had my first kids, and and those died. I think when I when I first held my son, you know. My first, uh, my firstborn, like um, the, it's just, it's, you know, whether it's, uh, well, you're just faced with the fact that uh, there's no, there's no neutrality. I mean, when you have children, you've got to make affirmative choices about how you're going to form them. And, you know, if you do, if you do that, and then you step back and think about society as a whole, you realize, um, you know, parents owe duties to children for, for proper mm-hmm. and virtuous formation. And if they don't get that, they're getting something else. They're getting something, something bad that's affirmatively harmful. Um, and so, mm-hmm. you know, that, that whole, um, you know, and there's, there's statistics on this. There's very clear political, you know, like polling and things like that, that, that um, people get a lot more conservative after they have kids, especially if they married yeah. households that have children. Um, yeah. And I think some of our, our craziness politically is probably that we're, you know, almost unlike any society ever in history where we're, uh, childlessness is, is just significantly mm-hmm. higher than it's ever been. Um, that, that has all sorts of bizarre effects on, I mean, for one thing, a lot of our electorate doesn't even know children. They don't even understand them because they don't have them and don't interact with children very much. And so, like, it's all very yeah. theoretical. Like, it's very easy to think about these social experiments where you make the kids act a certain way when you don't have kids yourself. Um, right. You right. know, so there's, there's all of that. And then there's like the, sh- the short term, short termism versus long termism. I mean, we're not, you know, just generally speaking, um, we're not making decisions the way that we used to with future generations in mind. Um, mm-hmm. and so, you know, it's, it's a fascinating, uh, I think it's a fascinating and sort of underrated uh, dividing line in politics today. Yeah, no, that's that's totally right. Um, I mean, you, it is shocking to think. I mean, depending on where you live, 
that that people not only don't have children. I mean, I think we're below parity, right, at the birth rate at this yeah. at this point, or that's where we're trending. Um, and then just don't see. I mean, I, I remember distinctly the first time we went to a um, you know supermarket, a store after we had um, our son. So it was probably uh, probably a month old where he went with us. The woman uh, who had to be in her fifties was was checking us out, and she said. She was looking at him and said it. She couldn't remember the last time that she had sent, seen a baby of that size, and it was probably when her only son was a baby who was now in his twenties. Wow! And so that's just a strange thing to to have a life where you're not around children, um, and you kind of see that with people. I mean, that every everyone's attitude changes, you know, around the the young kids in in church, right? The kids enter the room and everyone is kind of softened and, th- and you act and think differently. Um, so when you think at scale in a, in a society where you have, especially in blue enclaves where people maybe are never even seeing children or interacting with them, um, it, it does do something to you psychologically and, and intellectually even. Um, and last, so it's, so it's bad. Our, our, and our, our thoughts become too short, but last thing I'll say too is, you know, is the, um, I open the piece with the quote from Richard Baxter's Holy Commonwealth, where he says the, you know, the head of the second table is the fifth commandment. So here, even our, even our uh, single table tabularians, right, that don't want to apply both to society, um, the head of the second table, he says, is is the fifth commandment, and because it's the summary and ground of all human politics. And even though it just mentions parents and children there, mm-hmm. um, and and he goes on to talk about the reciprocal duties there. So children in turn then have a duty to their parents later. Um, he says it's really commanding the duties of princes and people as well. And so again, I would just say, what, however your polity is handling this most basic relationship, um, it tells you everything you need to know about what's how you're actually being ruled at the top yeah. uh, at a more political level. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting, right? Like despising your ancestors and then uh, despising your descendants by by not having any descendants those are those are so often co-travelers right and i mean you could even Mm -hmm. break it down to the psychological level like when you have kids and then you try to raise them yourself you're you're actually you're brought closer to your parents you'd say wow you know they were they really were trying or like man i you know i've got my gripes but man overall they were they were really good um you know, mm-hmm. and and there's a there's a psychological effect to that, but but then you know it's just it's 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 also gets to the conception of the self, and people um, people just don't con- people conceive of themselves as sort of autonomous individuals, you know, totally atomized mm-hmm. from their their place or their situation and sort of the you know the trajectory of of uh, mm-hmm. a bloodline, right? So like it's you know I don't you know. I don't owe anything to my parents. Um, I don't, you know, I, I don't, there's nothing that they gave me that I want to pass on to the next generation. It's a, um, mm-hmm. a, a terribly, you know, I, th- I think a terribly inhumane way to live. And I think as Christians, um, I'm very, very interested in this right now, but thinking about how as Christians we can, you know, demonstrate this, you know, respect for our ancestors, our hope for future generations um, as a, I mean, of, of course, it's, it's, it's deeply Christian. It's also deeply natural and it, it um, mm-hmm. you know, just conforms well with, with human nature as, as observed by a lot of different people. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think that that's, um, you know, I was, I was reminded too, I was reading, I was rereading a piece Aaron Wren did at American Affairs uh, not too long ago about, you know, kind of the, the WASP elite, right? And, and it's a topic he talks about all the time. And he, he had a line in there, I, I can't remember who he was quoting, that was, was saying that even in like the 19th century, late 19th century, the WASP class, you know, the, the ruling class at the time, had a like inordinate amount of children. All the families did. Mm-hmm. You, you had tons of them. And so even that, I mean, we can have our gripes as you move into the progressive era and these things. But um, at, at one point, our ruling class, default ruling class, um, lived lived that way. And we would say in this regard is, is still, and in many regards, still a distinctly Christian way of life, even if they were liberalizing. Um, but they had lots of lots of children. And this explains, you know, some of their capacity to rule and, and the way that they kind of comported themselves. And now I would say our default ruling class are the childless laptop class um, that, you know, uh, are getting vasectomies at, at 25 and things like this. Um, so it's, it, it is, you know, again, you could over overdo this, this part of the analysis, but I think, you know, when you brought it up, it just opens up so many uh, thoughts and considerations. And then, yeah, I, I would a hundred percent agree. Christians need to get, very creative, um, not only about protecting their families, but of, of demonstrating, you know, a, a better and truer way of life um, that is not only significant in the in the short term for our, our families as such, but really for the the nation itself, its health and 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 ultimately wealth. Yeah. So so much more to say here. I mean, I think like as we shift to the church, you know, and thinking about um, what they could be doing in this regard. I mean, it's, you know, it's easy to attack Tim Keller, right? And say, oh, you know, he's in the city. He's, he's uh, serving a bunch of people who've, you know, unreasonably postponed marriage or whatever. And, um, you know, it's easy to attack uh, the kids who aren't getting married. Although, you know, in many cases, it's not always through lack of trying. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, I think that, I think we do have to say the, what, what the church or the Christian community could be doing in, in terms of pronatalism is uh, it, it, it would have to be a pretty ambitious project. It's not enough for them just to, mm-hmm. to make their opinions known in a, a sermon on Sunday morning to build up a culture where, you know, people are encouraged to marry and there's pronatalism. I mean, this is, it, it's going to require thicker social institutions uh, and culture building than probably mm-hmm. what you can achieve on a, on a Sunday morning. Uh, you right. know, it, I mean, if you're, if, if you're a professional working in Manhattan and you go to Redeemer on Sunday mornings and then the rest of the week, your, your, uh, you know, your moral hierarchy and your, your whole way of life is being sort of dictated by your peers. Um, you know, you're, you're, you're going to have a tough time getting there, you know? Um, mm-hmm. so, you know, the, 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 I mean, we really need a, it, it's, the, given the social ills, the church really needs to get a lot more serious about how do we actually build a real counterculture that, you know, is thick, yeah. that actually is, is, is vibrant enough to move people off of the uh, secular trends. Right, right. Yeah, I think that, I mean, we, not to open up another can of worms, it may be a podcast in itself yeah. of kind of local, local strategies and you know, when, when to move, when not to move, how do you, all this, all these sorts of things. Um, but there's very, I think there's some things that are very, you know, 
basic. So, so you're talking about it has to be, we're going to have to do it at a level that we've never done it before, at least in our, our memory, recent memory have done before in terms of alternative culture building. And on the other hand, there's some like things that are just very easy that you could begin doing this with. I mean, even the small church I go to, one of the great things they do is they, they offer as a church scholarships for um, young families and their children to go to the classical school that is, is supported by the church because they realize it's a burden um, because it's not like you get to reallocate your public taxes, you know, to the school of your choice, really, you still pay those. Um, and young families, you know, that your earning potential and, and purchasing power, all these things are down. Um, so doing things like that, and we're talking about, you know, getting away from, from public schools, more or less, and churches can do things, you know, can be serious about this. Um, so stuff like that, I think you can already begin to do to, to alleviate some of the pressure. Um, but the long-term project you're talking about deserves, you know, a, a lot more thought and discussion and is going to have to be uh, creative and tailored to to the context that uh, the church finds itself in. Yep. Yep. But, but, and, and maybe the point is like, I'm not a, I'm not a pastor. You aren't either, but I mean, maybe the point is just like, we need, we need, I mean, we need vision casting on this and you're, you're absolutely yeah. right. It's going to look different. It's going to look different in Moscow, Idaho or Dallas, Texas, or, Mm-hmm. Uh, wherever you are, Camden, New Jersey. Where are you? Philadelphia. Philadelphia. Okay. <laughs> you always say I'm in Camden. I, I, I did live in Camden once, but now we didn't know each other when I lived. In I Camden. just imagine you dodging bullets and you know uh, syringes on the street as you. No, that, that's very accurate. Yeah, yeah. Um, my days in Newark. Yeah. Well, um, very good. Uh, time, and I think we can probably call this one a wrap. Um, for for those who yeah. haven't read it. Uh, it's called Polity Undone, a lengthy article, well worth your time on American Reformer. Um, thank you for listening. Uh, please, if you enjoyed this, uh, leave us a review, subscribe to the show. You can get us on um, Apple Podcasts. You can get us on Spotify, Podbean. Um, but those subscriptions and reviews help to get the word out about the show. And uh, as always, you can find our stuff at AmericanReformer.org. Uh, please prayerfully consider supporting us. We're a nonprofit organization. Uh, we're lean and mean, and uh, I can assure you, every dollar that you send us goes to uh, producing content for the for the world uh, to serve the church in in these times. Uh, so, please please do prayerfully consider supporting us. Um, thank you again for your time, and until next week. Thank you for listening to the American Reformer podcast. Make sure to visit us online at AmericanReformer.org. That's AmericanReformer.org. You can also follow us on Facebook and on Twitter at AMReformer.